Merely Podcasters presents The Tragedy of Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Yay! End of play. Yay, end of play. That's the play in it, though. Look a show. Woo! So it is. Yeah. Okay, things to discuss in this last very short act. It feels a lot like another of Shakespeare's attempt to get the battle scene correct. Mm. It reminds me a lot of Troilus and Cressida in particular. Oh. It does, actually. Just like, somebody runs this way and somebody runs that way in the small confrontation and then here's another one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think after the three parts of Henry VI, he's kind of learned to see as far as battles go. (laughs) Brought that one on himself. Yep. So what is it about the battles in Henry VI that reminds you of this play for people who have not read Henry VI? Well, it's more just a contrast than anything. The later you get in Shakespeare's work, the less you actually see of battles. Mm. Whereas in Henry VI, 2 Henry VI has the largest cast in all of Shakespeare, I think. And it gets to a point where, I think it's either in 2 or maybe in 3, you have a scene where you have a son who's just killed his father, and a father who's just killed his son in the heat of battle, both expressing their despair. And it's all a little bit over the top. Mm. Because I guess seeing rather than describing is considered less dramatic. Mm-hmm. I guess it's the transition between the classical Greek plays where everything happened off screen and a messenger would come on and report what mm-hmm. had happened and the Jacobean plays where everything that happened off screen in Elizabethan time happened on screen or on stage. But yeah, this battle scene is a lot of one-on-one fights, but with lots of running on and off to give a sense of, like, there is movement, there are things happening. We don't actually know. It just says in the script, fights. Like, maybe it was supposed to be ten people fighting on stage for five mm. minutes. We don't know. But we have lines of a couple one-on-one fights. Yeah, and actually the really sparse directions is usually what makes Shakespeare so malleable. They just mm-hmm. have to fight. It could be anything. Yeah, I did a parody of this in high school, Ubu Rex. Mm-hmm. Which, for the battle scenes, we just held our swords under our arms Mm -hmm. and tuck-pedaled our arms Mm -hmm. at each other. Yep, that's consistent with the text. Meg, do you want to talk about the scene? The scene. The famous hand-washing scene. Out, out. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The The scene. scene. That scene. What was it like doing that? What were your general thoughts? But also, how did you go about interpreting the scene? Because it has to mean something, so. Right. It's similar to playing drunk in that you want to play sane slash sober, depending on what you're trying to do. Mm. Mm, Yeah. Play the opposite. Right, yeah. But then this scene is also complicated. She's got, what, like five lines in that tiny little scene? And it was an interesting challenge to do that with just voice Mm -hmm. and no one else in the room Mm -hmm. just doing it to a computer yeah right that scene is so often very physicalized on stage right yeah so when I was going over the lines it was the one I probably spent the most with in my room saying come 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 for over and over again like how what's the most effective way to do this with just my voice Mm -hmm. that's fascinating what was that process like for you um So, okay, so in going over this play and preparing to do this for a podcast, as an artist, it was an interesting contrast between using the English classes side of my brain and the actor side of my brain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this, it was more useful to use the English student side of my brain. But with this one, it was where I really Mm. felt like, oh, these are where all of my acting tools are (laughs) coming into play. Interesting. So I can understand these five lines and really give them a good punch. Mm -hmm. We don't see the gentlewoman at all prior to this, do we? No. No, No, she's just in that scene. Yeah, because that was another interesting thing to me is that all of a sudden we see the lady with help, where she is no longer the help, Mm -hmm. but she is receiving the help 
from this person who disappears and then the lady also dies. Yeah, it is the first time that she seems to need help. Yeah, and one of the few other female characters in the play. We've got Lady Macbeth, Lady Macduff, the witches, and the gentlewoman is pretty Mm -hmm. much it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, next up is the prophecy finally gets fulfilled in this. Yes. The cryptic one. Vernon Wood comes to Dunsinane, and none of women born Mm -hmm. are Macbeth. Fun fact, that's where Tolkien got both the Ents invading Isengard and Eowyn slaying the Witch King from. Oh. Oh. I did not know this. Yep, directly. I had wondered about the Witch King slaying, if that was related or the fact that we only have so many stories that we can tell. Nope. That was both of those. He thought that he could have done it a lot cooler, and then he did it a lot cooler. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So technically the prophecy is none of women born shall harm Macbeth, and he's the one who keeps saying no man of women born. So it would have covered women, but only women who were not born by a cesarean dissection. How many of us here can kill Macbeth? Am I the only one? Yep. You can kill me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Vex, you did a great job, especially with Macbeth for jumping in at the last minute like that, so thank you. Yeah. I feel like it's also got more of a classical twist to the prophecy, because... If Macbeth wasn't told that none of women born can hurt him, would he have stayed on the battlefield for so long? Probably not. Yeah, he only stayed because he thought he was invincible, and that's what let him be vinced. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, that's another instance of the, you will make the prophecy come true. If you hear the prophecy, it will influence your actions in such a way that it will make the prophecy happen. Mm -hmm. The self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Believing you can somehow change a prophecy lets it come true. Yeah. Yeah. Or even believing too hard in a prophecy. He believed that none of them could kill him. He was right. Young Seward couldn't kill him, but he didn't realize the loophole that was coming at him. Yeah. Which answers the vague question of why are the witches telling him all of this, which is a prophecy kind of inherently needs to be heard in Mm. order to come true. Mm. A prophecy that nobody knows about, that's, this is not really a prophecy. Interesting. I mean... I feel like it just affects the way in which the prophecy comes to fruition. Like, the way in which a prophecy is told is going to change. Whether or not someone else can hear it is going to affect the way the prophecy is told. Mm. Because if someone is going to hear it, then it's going to take into account the way they interpret it and the way they alter their actions based on it. As opposed to, if someone does prophesize and they just write it down and never show anybody, it's going to be a very different prophecy because it doesn't have the effect of someone trying to change the world based on this. Hmm. If a prophecy gets told in a forest and no one hears it, will it come true? That's exactly what I was about to say. (laughs) Yeah, this is the sound of one hand clapping. (laughs) I guess it's a little tricky because there haven't really been scientific studies comparing prophecies that have been heard and prophecies that haven't. At some point, I do need to wax lyrical about Seward because I picked that role for a reason. I love Seward. I love young Seward. I'm the only one who gives a shit about young Seward and Seward. I have since I was wee little. Go for it. Wax about Seward. Yeah, tell us why. When I was a wee little babbit and I read Macbeth for the first time, I was nine. And I only read it because it was in a weird comic format where every other scene was a comic. And then the stuff in between was just the straight text. So you could skim through the straight text and then read the comics. And it's great for the Scottish play because there's so much death and murder in it. So it's great when you're nine. Yeah, it was great. I got to watch him chop Macbeth's head off and everything. I loved it. But I was nine, so I still had a very black and white worldview. Nuance wasn't a thing my brain could do yet. Like, I distinctly remember asking my mom, why is this a tragedy? The bad guy dies at the end. The good guys win. And she tries to explain the whole, like, no, it's about a good man falling and becoming bad. And he's like, but he was bad from the beginning because he was willing to kill his king. Like, he wasn't good from the beginning. He did bad things. How was he a good person? (laughs) 
That reminds me of how I was when I was very little and asked my parents to read me Wicked and they were like, it's a very sad book. And I'm like, it's about a villain. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I didn't understand until way later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it won't bother me. She's the Wicked Witch. Yeah, but with Seward, he's got that line about his son's death where he asks, were all his wounds before? And once he finds out that his son died with all of his wounds on the front of his body, meaning that he died fighting, not running away, it eases his mind so much. And he's got to think about like, it's, it's a good death. It's fine. If you have to die, this is the way to go. And it blew my little nine-year-old mind because that was not a way I'd ever thought of death before. And I was enchanted by it. And it's honestly severely shaped my worldview and what I look for in fantasy and kind of my values today. So that little line there is very formative. (laughs) I like it. And everybody always cuts it because nobody wants young Seward in there. Because he's in one scene. So yes, that was why I read Seward. I insisted on it. Yes, you did. And I wanted to make sure that we would work everything out. Do you have any other questions about the act, other things that we should discuss? Oh, right. Always the question, what should somebody who's never read or listened to the Scottish play before look out for going into this? I guess the big one is how Macbeth tries to fulfill the prophecy. Keep your eyes on that prophecy. That's the play. I think it's also, and this is less to do with the actual structure of the play, but especially in Act 5, it's fun to listen mm-hmm. for really famous lines that you didn't know are from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yes. Out damn spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day. That's a lot of good stuff in there. That line, mm-hmm. I yeah. didn't realize it until I was reading it, and I was trying not to do it in the same pattern that Lin-Manuel wrote it in for Hamilton. Yeah. Because I thought it sounded familiar and I didn't uh-huh. remember it was from this play until I was halfway through the Tomorrows and I'm like, oh no, yeah. Yeah. here we go. <laughs> and there's actually something kind of great about that. It's one of those speeches, not quite as bad to be or not to be, but kind of like that, that is so famous and is done so many times that it's hard to do it as if it's fresh and new. But if you don't know what you're reading and you get halfway through and you're just speaking it simply, there's an honesty in that, which is hard to get, which I think is one of the benefits of cold readings. I think it is possible, especially with Shakespeare, to know a speech too well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in that way to lose the immediacy that makes it sound like it's a person speaking their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is benefit to not having read very much and especially not having listened to or watched very much. Yeah. Yeah. Or also not having practiced a certain thing a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Depends. Yeah. Yeah, you haven't been taught how you're supposed to say Shakespeare, so you just say it. Yeah. A lot of my teachers in England were like, just speak the speech very simply. Just say the words. Don't even think about the meaning. Just read the words very simply. And it's very interesting results you get when you do it that way, when it's just the person Mm -hmm. speaking. Yeah. Not that I'd advise always doing acting like that, but it is an interesting exercise. But also that speech in general is a good one to talk about because it is so famous. Yeah. And also, it relates to his reaction to Lady M's death, which is also a thing that gets discussed a lot. Yeah, I think that monologue is essentially entirely quoted. Like, I don't think there's a single part of that that people don't quote that isn't Mm -hmm. famous in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and lots of people talk about, huh, he doesn't seem all that upset after Lady M's death. He just says, she should have died hereafter. And if people have interpreted it as, oh, he's saying nothing really matters, it doesn't really matter, but... I always felt like that was his mourning for her, his being upset, his turning point. Because that's when he enters the battlefield after that. He finds out his wife's dead, and then he has this really big speech, almost an existential crisis, and then runs onto the battlefield. Mm. Oh, definitely. So people debate, did his wife's death affect him or not? I think it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you read it that way, I think it does a really good job of showing just the, like, 
the emptiness of the gut punch of that that he has taken Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. completely depends on how you read it but like just just that moment when you realize that they are gone and you're just kind of tingly and feel like nothing yeah exactly and lady macbeth he saw it coming she's been sick for a really long time he threatened the doctor where it's like no you obviously know some way to fix it fix it Mm -hmm. he knew it was coming so i think that the fact that he knew it was coming also affects the way that he reacts to it yeah and obviously there are multiple ways that you can interpret and play something my old dom he used to say there is no single right answer but there are wrong answers so as long as you can find some support in the text you can Mm -hmm. interpret or read things in a bunch of different ways yeah so yeah a lot depends Mm -hmm. on how you do read it you were talking about the way Macbeth was reacting to the doctor and saying the doctor should have a way to fix this it feels like that is if not the start then just another glimpse of the spiral that he's going into with realizing that he can't control all this shit Mm -hmm. since he heard the first prophecy he has developed a sense of oh oh, I have power. Oh, I can control things and I can make my fate happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the beginning, but that's at least another glimpse of him being like, no, no, wait, I totally have control of this. I totally, if I just intimidate this doctor enough, he'll remember some other way to do that. Right? Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much power is a very big theme in this play. Yeah. Very traditionally. But when it goes back to Macbeth's fatal flaw, which is like the thing that gets hammered at and hammered at and hammered at until he breaks, a false sense of control, that could be an interesting interpretation of that. I think there's textual support for that. Yeah. I also enjoy looking at that and looking at the end about Malcolm's speech and the fact that it's Malcolm speaking at the end when he isn't the one who killed Macbeth and he isn't the one who has all of the power here, but he is still the final voice in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's the final voice and he also has the support of everyone around him. He didn't make himself king. He was made king by the people around him. Yeah. It's sort of like the difference between assuming command and being given command by the people under you yeah lady knight reference my favorite book ever (laughs) (laughs) but yes that is one thing in general that is always good to look out for who ends the play who speaks at the end of the play who does the big Mm -hmm. speech at the end of a shakespeare play is very significant to the point Mm -hmm. that in as you like it rosalind has a thing about it isn't usually customary for the woman to finish the play and have the monologue that ends it Mm -hmm. so that is just an interesting thing that it is a significant position in any Shakespeare play who is it that has the closing monologue yeah Mm -hmm. and if I'm reading a play like this for the first time and I find out that the end monologue is from someone I was completely not paying attention to Mm -hmm. if I have the time I love to go back and Mm -hmm. read the play from that specific character's perspective because it feels to me like Mm -hmm. this is a person who was important whether or not you Mm -hmm. looked at it yeah that's Mm -hmm. fascinating because yeah it isn't always the person you expect or it isn't always obvious who it's going to be. Like in Midsummer, it yeah. could have been a lot of people who finished at the play, but it's Puck. Yep, yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the one I was thinking of, actually. Yeah! <laughs> That's the first Shakespeare monologue I ever learned. Nice. Oh, but that makes me think of, gosh, the end of Othello, where some rando shows up who really isn't in the play. I'm not even going to go down that path, because <sighs> there are too many paths with Shakespeare. that's why we love it yeah Yeah. you can do it over and over and over again and always find something new yeah Mm -hmm. it's true Mm -hmm. but i think that's a good general suggestion not even the end monologue but looking at oh if there's something like young seward that catches your attention it's a good invitation to revisit the play from not macbeth's point of view or not whoever not the four lovers point of view in midsummer to go back for a different angle 
almost like he wants you to just keep returning and returning and returning to his plays for some reason. Yeah. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And that's how you sell more seats. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Also, for anyone who may be reading this for school, that's a good place to start for finding paper topics. Yep. Hey. That's very true. Pick a character or a theme and trace it through the play. Yep, that is very true. You yeah. will stand out if you decide to go back and write the entire paper about Donald Bain's <laughs> in this <laughs> yes you will <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he just fucks off to ireland forever yeah yep. it's true i think we talked a little bit in the last recording about the line of succession stuff that shows at the end of this mm. this is where it happens in the end of the play yeah that's going into canistry which is just a very weird line it's a lot older than primogeniture which wasn't even the standard at the time that this play takes place the idea that the firstborn son was always the one to inherit was actually it's more recent than you would expect it is based on a real historical thing and at the time of the historical Macbeth in Scotland wasn't it that the rulership was passed back and forth between two families who alternated and that it was supposed to go to not necessarily the son but someone from the other family it's kind of two lines of the same family yeah two different lines that were supposed to alternate yeah the Scots had Tannis at the time which was basically switching between a line via like cousins or something so instead of your son inheriting your brother or nephew or cousin would and so it would sort of bounce around inside of a family which meant that you could always send it to the most qualified person mm. so it wasn't just automatically the next person born good seems like a smarter way to go about it Anastry was really complicated because it's like you did have to be descended from a specific dude by a specific way, but sometimes you also had to be elected by like a council of other important noblemen, and it varied a lot and it was all over the place, and if you look up the Wikipedia article for it really fast like I just <laughs> did, it will have a gajillion words you've never seen before, including <laughs> agnate. You have to be a patrilineal agnate or something in order to qualify, and I'm just not delving into that. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. But it also got a little bit messy because then anybody in a family could go up for grabs and so things could get pretty brutal and bloody. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was something about that they were supposed to alternate and then someone didn't want to. And that's what the conflict was about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Historically, Macbeth was, I think, Duncan's cousin yeah. or something. And he was supposed to inherit it next because he was the most accomplished in battle. He was established. He was relatively older, so he was more mature. And when Duncan decided to do things by the more English way of doing things and make his son inherit, which almost never happened in Tanistry, he went to war because he felt like his birthright was being denied in favor of foreign practices. Mm. The succession line back then was really complicated. Yes. And that spurred the real life conflict because they tried to simplify it in a way that cut somebody else out. Yeah. The actual history is rather different than what's in the play. Also, one more other thing about it. There was a great reference in here that I caught at the very end to I'm going to Scone to be crowned because all Scottish kings are crowned on the Stone of Scone. Yep. Which is this big rock. There was a thing a couple years ago when some kids stole it. It was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's also where Terry Pratchett parodied it in Fifth Elephant, <gasps> the Scone of Stone that all dwarven kings are <laughs> crowned on. <laughs> I have not gotten there yet, but wow, I'm excited. I need 
to read that book. Yeah, because dwarven bread is really hard and rock-like. Right. Right, of course. So somebody made a really big scone at some point that was really, really hard, and it became the thing that the kings were crowned on. Christ, that's amazing. Yes. That's great. This completely has nothing to do at all with Macbeth. Yeah, no. But also, ending the last monologue of this play, not only with someone who isn't in power, but Mm -hmm. with a place so powerful that all of these powerful people are crowned there. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm just going to be over here with my thesis work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that shows up. I think it was the, yeah, the last line of the play is I will be crowned at Scone. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not even crowned yet. He's going to be crowned. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it ends on an expectation of power, but not actual power. Yeah, a little bit like Hamlet in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Or very reflective of the rest of the play, an expectation of power, Mm. but not actual power. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. it's thematic. We don't know what happened. I mean, in real life, we know what happened. Well, yeah. (laughs) But... Still. But like in the context of the play. In the world of the play, which does differ a lot from history. Yeah. It's a thematic place to end. Yeah. 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 Thank you for enlightening me. On that, is there anything else we need to touch on, or have we about gotten everything? I think we've got about everything. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Yes, thank you all. Especially you, Vex. Thank you. Yes, especially Vex. Thank you so much for stepping in. And like I say, I think that your reading of Macbeth was especially good, particularly for not having practiced it. Oh, yay. Thank you. <laughs> good job putting this together, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. This has been great. Yes. Night. In Act 5, the role of Doctor was played by Mira Singer. Gentlewoman was played by Zeke Mabin. Lady Macbeth was played by Magdalene Zinke. Menteth was played by Brian Tedford. Angus was played by E.J. Cotler. Kathness was played by Magdalene Zinke. Lennox was played by Mira Singer. Macbeth was played by Vex. Servant was played by Mira Singer. Satan was played by Max Fine. Malcolm was played by E.J. Kotler. Seward was played by Grace Sturdislavich. Macduff was played by Max Fine. Messenger was played by Grace Sturdislavich. Young Seward was played by Magdalene Zinke. Ross was played by Mira Singer. Soldiers were played by everyone. And stage directions were read by Vex. Merely Podcasters was created by Grace Tardislavich and Mira Singer, and produced by Grace Tardislavich, Mira Singer, and Vex. Oh, did I say unworthy? Yeah, I'm going to start that over. Whoops. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs> All right. Woo! Satan's only, basically, Satan only exists to provoke tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, or to cue tomorrow. Okay. I'm thinking a bit of a downer. Just, I don't want to be here. I'd rather be at the cooking class. Look, sorry, my my brain stopped in the middle of my sentence there. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I'ma do a lot of talking to myself. Technically, you can you kill yourself in that. I mean, yeah, so. yes. <laughs> <laughs> The problem is that there's just a lot of talking to myself. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. That's the problem with us losing our Scottish king and I volunteering before I realize that she's also reading Macduff. True facts, true facts. It'll be a revenge for her casting me as the two people who have a conversation at the beginning of Hamlet. (laughs) And I didn't realize until I started reading it.
And I realized as I got to the end of the thing, wait, I'm the second person to, and I had to suddenly pitch my voice lower, so. Yeah. Yeah. This is related revenge.